0: This is you, hello, and you are just living your life. There are hundreds of other people just like you. And one thing that all of you use have in common is that you all rely on transportation. Even if you never drive, or you don't even own a car, transportation affects you in massive ways, from the price of toilet paper at the store, to the amount of time we waste stuck in traffic. Transportation affects our economy all of the time. Meaning it affects you and your wallets all of the time. So, why is Congress playing games with America's transportation system? You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast uh this week i'm I want to start with just a couple of brief kind of housekeeping things. First, we are in the process of switching our servers for the podcast, and uh, did some work this last weekend to try to make that work out, make it as seamless as possible. Uh, one of the side effects of that is that some of the back episodes did not copy over to the new server. I think it allowed us to go back like 20 episodes or something like that. And we're on, boy, we're well over 100 now. So, you know, we've, we've got quite a bit of content there that isn't, uh, in fact, I think we're getting close to 200, aren't we? Uh, there's quite a bit of content there that didn't copy over the new server. We still have it. And one of the things that I've set up now just in the short term is essentially an, an archive place where you can go back and dig through them. We ultimately want to get them all transferred over, at least all very accessible to people. Uh But the latest one should be there. Obviously, if you're listening to this through your normal channels, it's there. Uh The other one should be there uh at some point in the near future. And if there's an issue that comes up where you want something, from a while back, just get a hold of us. Go to the uh, the strongtowns.org, dot uh, Contact us. Let us know which one you're looking for, and we'll figure out a way to make that happen. Uh, one of the reasons why we're switching platforms is just because. Well, there's one big reason, but there's a a, a backstory reason. We need better analytics on the podcast. We we use a service for our blog. Uh, that runs through a company called Squarespace. And Squarespace I just love. Uh, It's an excellent spot for blogging. Uh, I picked that site and that company uh, first because I I really like the blog sites that other people were doing with Squarespace. I'm not a big fan of WordPress. I tried Blogger. Uh, You know, if you like those, you like those, and, and so be it. But Squarespace allowed me to format things and do some, I'll call it artistic things or creative things, uh in a way that some of those others didn't and i just i i like that i like that flexibility uh the problem is that squarespace is not set up uh to deliver the podcast exactly in the way we'd like to do it and specifically with the feedback and the analytics that we really need and uh and, and kind of at this point have to have let me explain why we have to have it but let me tell you what i mean first by analytics there was a long time here where I didn't know if anybody listened to this podcast at all. I mean like literally, I didn't know if anybody was out there even downloading it. Uh we would see that, you know, people were accessing the page, but we never got like a running count of how many people were getting it. We the other day, not the other day, a couple of months ago, uh got our first real set of analytics on the podcast and we're just kind of blown away by the sheer volume of people that are downloading it. I mean I was thinking at the high end, we'd maybe be like 500, 600, and we were many, many, many multiples of that, like put some zeros on the end of that. Uh, and so it it kind of blew me away in terms of how many of you are out there actually listening to us. Uh, on one hand, it was a little freaky. On the other hand, uh, it gives us a little bit of confidence and upside on the reason why we're looking at the analytics. Uh, Many of you who have been with us for a while know that we had some startup money from a foundation uh, that helped us get started over the first three years. We actually had some indications that they were going to fund us for a fourth year. And basically about three weeks before that funding was set to kick in, uh, we were notified that no, uh, their whatever subcommittee, subcommittee of subcommittees uh, had decided that they were going to take at least a year off. Everything was good. I mean, they're happy with us. They think it's great, but it was a very, they told us a very odd thing for them to fund someone, particularly a startup like us, three years in a row. And, uh, they just thought it was a bad precedent. So, okay. <laughs> Some of the plans that we had regarding membership, uh, are well underway. And, you know, we're confident that we're going to be around as an organization. There's enough demand. There's enough people out there supporting us. But some of the things we had in the works for 2015 for funding the podcast in a strong towns kind of way, a financially viable long-term kind of way, came into question because uh, of this decision. The analytics are going to help us do one really important thing, and that is be able to kind of discern the size of our audience and be able to reach out to people who may potentially... Have some interest in funding this podcast. We basically need about $16,000 a year to make the podcast portion of what we do a viable thing. And so we're trying to figure out, is that going to be, you know, an individual or a series of individuals who step up and sponsor that, that going to be some organizations who do some placements here, uh, Things that w- would not necessarily be advertising, but a- along those lines. Uh, are we going to turn to our members and say, you know, we'd like to see, you know, we'd like to ask you to help pitch in to make this a viable undertaking? I'm not really sure what direction we're going to go with that yet. Uh, if you have an idea, if you uh, have $16,000 and love this podcast and want to help us uh, fund this thing for 2015 and beyond, let me know. I mean, get a hold of us. We'd love to chat with you. Uh If you're an organization and you really love this podcast and want to reach people uh with your message, let's have a conversation. Uh We're certainly not looking to advertise, uh, but we do want to help promote like-minded people and like-minded organizations that we think our members might be interested in. So if that's a possibility, we'd love to chat with you too. And if you're not a member of Strong Towns, uh, boy, head on over and become a member. Uh, we're up over 400 now. Our goal for this year is quite a bit higher than that. And so we do need people to step up and to be part of, uh, our, our plans, uh, part of our, uh, model, part of our organization, uh, relies on you and, uh, and you supporting the stuff that we're doing here. So thank you to everybody that is a member. And if you're not, let's go. Today, we're going to talk about the Highway Trust Fund and the gas tax and the whole transportation funding mess. And and I don't know quite how far we're going to get into this thing, but uh, because I've got a lot to say about it, but we're going to try to take a big chunk out of it today. And if we wind up uh, with a cliffhanger, which actually my notes kind of suspect that we will, uh, I promise to come back here in the future and finish this conversation with you. Uh, The Federal Highway Trust Fund is the essentially the the collection of our gas tax dollars. There's some other funding that goes into it as well, but the bulk of the money comes from federal gas tax that we all pay at the gas pump. When we fill up our cars, when we fill up our gas tanks, we pay 18, let me get the exact numbers, 18.3 or 18.4. It is 18.4 cents per gallon for every gallon that you pump you pay 18.4 cents goes to the federal government into the highway trust fund the highway trust fund then turns around and allocates that money back to the states uh to fund transportation uh, it was generally uh, meant to fund highways in the beginning it is broadened now to fund transit uh to fund a, a lot of other initiatives and what we are finding what we are finding now is that the Federal Highway Trust Fund is just simply not keeping pace uh, with the revenue outflows. Let me give you a little taste of some of the reasons why that is, or at least some of the reasons that are being put forward as to why the Federal Trust Fund is now finding itself in a very difficult position.
1: Highway Trust Fund is fueled by an 18 cent gas tax consumers pay at the pump, but that hasn't been increased since 1993. And what's happened with the cost of asphalt, concrete, steel, rail, it's all gone up exponentially. Our vehicles are more fuel efficient, but it declines that source of revenue. Roads aren't getting any uh, less costly to build.
0: All right, so the costs are going up. Uh, Asphalt costs more, gravel costs more, uh, and, and the roads are getting more costly to build. And at the same time, Automobiles are becoming more fuel efficient, and so for every mile traveled, they're paying less in gas tax. And We're being told, my favorite one, and I actually hunted around for a clip and couldn't find a real good one. My favorite one is that uh, we haven't increased the gas tax since 1993, uh, 18.4 cents a gallon, and boy, oh boy, inflation has taken a big bite out of that. And that dollar just doesn't go anywhere near as far as it used to go some of the hysterics that have kind of cropped up around this debate. And of course, you know, we, we're reaching the point now, the federal high, the federal funding cycle goes from October till the end of September. So we're approaching August now. And essentially what happened is that the trust fund dollars only got us to August or mid August is what it's going to end up to be. And those last six weeks of outflows basically aren't funded come October 4, 1st, it will be funded again but there'll be another gap uh, as we approach the end and that gap will continue to increase because every year here on out the gap widens and widens and widens and the money will go less distance in the uh in the fiscal year for the federal government but we're being treated now to kind of the late game hysterics the you know, we're, we're about to go bankrupt. Everything's about to go bad. And I just, I wanted to share with you before we kind of get into an analysis of these ideas, uh, I, I want to share with you a couple of the little hysterics that we've gotten. Here's the first one, uh, which is some people expressing why they uh, support more money for transportation. The reason we're here today is to request that the federal funding, which plays a critical role in making projects like this a reality to come through with some certainty. Currently, the projects that we're working on improve traffic congestion on key highways through Madison and the region. They provide safe links from one side of the road to the other, connecting neighborhoods on both sides. There are also some pedestrian and bike road improvements with both an underpass and an overpass over the Beltline. And they allow businesses and jobs to grow in this corridor. So that was out of Wisconsin. So you, you you get the litany of uh you know, here's all the local projects we're doing, aren't they great? Uh we're fixing congestion, we're allowing people to get across the highway. Uh we've got all these great things that we're doing, and you know, unless we fix this nebulous trust fund problem out there, uh we're gonna have to pick up our shovels and just stop working here. And that's not gonna be good for you, that's not gonna be good for us, it's not gonna be good for anybody, so let's just fix this problem, right? Uh, one of the more hysterical ones comes out of the debate they're having in Missouri right now. And I, I want to share that one with you, too, because it it, it kind of goes to the extreme, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of typical for the course if you watch the way that these debates have been unfolding.
1: A powerful visual, a school bus with a prop resembling a piece of bridge crushing it. This bus signifies all that is wrong with our current transportation system.
0: The backdrop for organized labor and others supporting Amendment Seven. It's kind of funny because I I sat and watched that. That was actually a, a news clip off the TV, and I, I wondered, you know, this uh, prop, you know, this fake piece of bridge that fell and crushed this school bus, and ostensibly, you know, if, if this reality comes to bear, if we don't throw a bunch more money at transportation, and this horrific world comes to be. Uh, children will be getting killed by falling bridge debris. And it was interesting to me when I heard that quote, you know, this uh, personifies everything that's wrong with our trans funding so I thought, well, what, you know, I, 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 was a little bit lost on me. Nonetheless, uh, we're in this, um, phase of this debate where now the hysterics are starting to ratchet up. Uh, we're beyond reasoned argument. And we're now at the point where we're going to start saying, look, you know, you, you like congestion or not? You want to get across the highway or not? Uh, I, I, I wrote on the blog last week, you know, that the one in Missouri kind of had with the school bus had kind of an old school mafia kind of thing to it. You know, uh, if you don't give us the money, that's okay, but some bad things might happen. Uh, we're not saying bad things are going to happen, but you know, Bad things might happen if we don't get the money we need. A little bit of a shakedown kind of thing. So here's where my mind goes with this. Uh, the gas tax hasn't been increased since 1993. You even have someone like Jon Stewart saying, "You know, hey, it hasn't been indexed to inflation. We didn't even do that. It's lost all this purchasing power. So I ask the question, all right, our gas tax hasn't been increased since 1993. That's that's a fair observation. If we actually took and indexed the gas tax from that point to inflation, what would it be today? It's currently 18.4. If we had indexed it for inflation, it would be 29.7 cents. It would be a, a full 11.3 cents greater. Uh, that is indexed to inflation. And, you know, there's people talking for a gas tax increase in that range, a nickel, a dime, uh 15 cents, 18 cents. You know, I, I've, I've heard a bunch of numbers thrown around. Uh, none of them really by serious politicians. The serious politicians, which we're going to get to in a little bit, are running away from the notion of a gas tax increase, uh, largely because gas is at its most expensive level ever. And, you know, if you are aware anything about the debate or the... I call it the science or the understanding about oil being traded in global markets. Uh, the there's a certain, uh, you know, inelastic nature to the gas price right now, uh, and it is very unlikely that we're going to see, unless our economy completely craters, much lower gas prices. So I, I think it, you know any prudent politician is not going to want to get branded with the volatility that future gas prices are likely to have by signing on to even a modest gas tax increase. Nonetheless, uh, people are saying, if we just adjust it for inflation, 29.7 cents is where we would be today. I then asked the a question, all right, we talk about transportation so often in terms of growth. Uh, transportation, infrastructure investments are a catalyst for growth, are a catalyst for Growing our economy, creating jobs, expanding opportunity, all all the great things that come about from transportation investments. What if instead of indexing to inflation, we had indexed to GDP growth, the gross domestic product? What if we said, let's grow our transportation tax at the same rate that we're actually growing our economy? So there's kind of a relationship there between growth and transportation investments. Let's index to each other. If we had done that in 1993, what would that have meant today? Currently, we're at 18.4%. I said adjusted for inflation would be at 29.7 cents. Uh, Adjusted for the gross domestic product, it would be just slightly higher at 30.1 cents. So just 0.4 cents higher than what the inflation adjustment would be. We're, we're still in that zone, right, that zone of 11 to $0.12 cent increase. I think a more sophisticated question, however, uh, would have us deal with actual demand. I, I've long been on record saying that the problem with our transportation funding system is that there's no correlation between supply and demand. Uh, we all pay into this slush fund. We all pay into this communal fund the gas tax, and we all expect that all of our transportation needs will be taken care of from that fund. Uh, that's our demand. Uh, the supply, however, of revenue is just not there. Uh, but there's no direct correlation. It, it's it's all gone through uh, multiple different hands before supply and demand actually meet out on the highway. Uh, the user using it doesn't pay directly for uh, whatever level of congestion, or whatever level of performance they're getting. They're paying an indirect tax. So the question that I had in terms of what the proper gas tax should be was to say, all right, let's not adjust it for inflation. Let's not adjust it for growth. Let's adjust it for traffic, for actual growth in the average daily traffic. Uh, many of you know and have heard that traffic counts have not been growing. In fact, for a number of years actually went down. Uh, there's some talk that we've reached peak traffic. In other words, uh, we should expect even with population growth from this point forward that uh, traffic will not continue to increase the way that it has. I I think there's some validity to that, that, you know, that conversation to that argument. Uh, nonetheless, uh if we adjusted uh for traffic for the increase in traffic the probably closest indicator of demand that we're going to get uh we're currently at 18.4 cents per gallon uh adjusted for traffic we would be at 23.8 cents per gallon uh quite a bit less uh that would just be a 5. Point, uh, 5.4 Cent increase, So about half the increase that inflation and GDP growth would get us. To me, that's the zone we're in, right? Uh, that's, the, that's the kind of zone that we're in when we talk about what would be a politically kind of palatable amount that we could increase the gas tax, uh, an amount that could maybe be justified by economic growth or by traffic counts or what have you. Uh, we're in that zone of five to ten to maybe twelve cents a gallon. Here's the shocking part: I went and got the numbers from the American Society of Civil Engineers, who did this really, you know, in-depth report. Uh, took the federal numbers uh, for need, uh, looked at the funding gap, looked at all the states and all the localities that submitted, and said. You know, what, what is the actual need out there? What do we need in terms of revenue, uh, to be able to fund this transportation system? And I actually think they put some type of caveat in there, uh, that said, you know, to the, the minimum responsible level. Uh, so this was, this was a system that they were putting forth saying, look, we're not asking for all the bells and whistles here. We're not asking for everything. Uh, that could possibly be needed on the sun. This is the kind of minimum viable system. This is the minimum system that we can look at and say, yeah, this is going to work and, and suit our needs. That number is $94 billion per year. It's a, it's a gap of $94 billion between what we are spending and what the American Society of Civil Engineers indicates that we need to spend in order to meet this kind of minimum threshold. I converted that into the gas tax. And here's what I got. If we looked at the current as being 18.4 cents per gallon, and we talked about adjusting to inflation, adjusting to GDP being around 30 cents a gallon, adjusted for traffic, adjusted for the actual demand around 24 cents a gallon. in order to meet this $94 billion dollar gap and uh, you know a- adjust it for the funding need, we would have to have a gas tax around a gas tax increase of around 78 cents per gallon 18 versus 30 versus 24 versus 78 so you know we're talking about a massive 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 increase needed you know beyond anything that would be uh you know a, a politically doable a but also, B, beyond you know inflation, beyond GDP, beyond actual growth and demand, uh, in order to meet what the American Society of Civil Engineers is saying is our basic funding needs, we need some astronomical tax increases. Now, pause here for a second. I, I want to point out one thing mathematically before we go too much further. And then I want to talk about the implications of this. First, the math. Um, my analysis here, and I posted the entire thing on the blog. If you go to the, if you go to Google and just type in Strong Towns, let me get the title of this thing. Some perspective on the gas tax. Uh, I published this on July 24th. If you go there and, and, and type that in, uh, what you're gonna find is that I went through and explained all the math. Here's how I came up with all of these numbers. Here's how I derive them. Here's the actual tables. Actually included the spreadsheet in there so you can download it yourself and goof around with it. Uh, trying to be very transparent in terms of how I came up with these numbers and where I got them. That 78 cents per gallon number is uh, the result of a static analysis. A static analysis is one that assumes. That people will continue to drive as much as they do today, even when the price goes up. We know that to be demonstrably false, right? We know that when if the price, to have, if the price of gas went up today by you know sixty cents a gallon, that I'm suggesting it would need to in order to meet the need, that a sizable number of people would actually drive less. They would actually decide you know what, I'm not going to take that trip. Uh, I am going to switch to a more fuel-efficient car. I'm going to move to a different location. Uh, It no longer makes sense for me to work at this remote job. I'm going to take a different job for less money but less travel expense. That kind of thing. There, There would be a reaction in the marketplace to the higher price. I don't know what that reaction would be. And quite frankly, nobody knows what that reaction would be. We can sit and guess. Uh, but you know, when we're guessing we're out on the far edge of the data points and we really don't know what happens out on that far edge. You know, we've never done a 60 cent a gallon gas tax increase, uh, when we already have really, really high gas prices. So no one really knows how people in the marketplace will react. If they tell you they do, they're lying. They don't know. Nobody really knows. I assume that there would be no reaction. We know there will be some. What implications does that have? The implication that it has is that if people drive less, the price actually has to go up higher to get the same amount of revenue. right? If all of a sudden now people are saying, whoa, whoa, the gas tax is too high, uh, I'm actually going to reduce the amount that I drive uh, because gas costs too much now, what happens? The federal government collects less gas tax revenue. And so... What's the response? We have to raise taxes even higher to meet the need, right? To maintain and build and construct and do all that we say we're going to do. We need to raise the tax even higher. Obviously, at some point here, you get into the dog chasing its tail kind of territory. You know, the, we, we raise the tax, fewer people drive. We have to raise the tax more, fewer people drive yet. I talked to some people at the Wisconsin DOT who had done... This kind of analysis and made some assumptions in terms of dynamic response, and they indicated to me that there was no there was no cap on the amount the gas tax would need to go up because essentially the higher you went up, the fewer people drove and the higher it had to go up yet and there basically the feedback loop there was just you you would have an infinite price and ultimately nobody would drive let 's talk about the implications of that and 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 to me, I think this is the the broader implication of this entire analysis that I've done. We have a gas tax right now that sits at 18.4 cents a gallon. The trust fund is going broke. We have all these people saying all these horrible things will happen. If the trust fund goes broke, we're going to have congestion. We're not going to have people get around. Uh, we're going to lose jobs. We're going to lose uh, economic growth. All these horrible things will happen. Yet here's the need that we have to have kind of like the base system, and this approach that we've come up with and created, uh, the base system is so much beyond in terms of cost, what we actually have the capacity or the willingness to fund, that it, it's, it's almost laughable. Like we can't even rationally discuss getting to that point. When that is the case, you don't have a funding problem. What you have is a system design problem. You have a system that is designed to not work. If our transportation system is going to grow at the rate of inflation, uh, in other words, our expenditures, our, our tax rates, what have you, are going to try to keep up with the inflation rate. We may argue if that's a good thing or not. We may argue whether you know that's the right thing to do or not. But that's a fairly modest increase, right? If our transportation system is going to grow uh, at the rate that the economy grows, in other words, uh, we need to make transportation investments to keep the economy growing, the economy is growing, and so we should be increasing our transportation investments. Again, that's a modest increase as well. Uh, Seems like one that we should be able to handle, Uh, you know, a a dime, 12 cents a a gallon. We can handle that. If it's actually going to grow with traffic demand, Boy, we can handle that too. I mean, we're talking about like a nickel. It would need to go up a nickel, right? Why in the world do we need 78 cents a gallon to keep up? Why would gas taxes need to go up that much when our economy isn't growing that fast? It, 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 the buying power of the dollar is not deflating that fast. And traffic demand isn't anywhere near growing that fast. Why? Why do we need so much more money? And the reason is because the very system that we have accelerates the costs and is not built in a way that is fiscally prudent. And let me just give you one, let me just give you one small, small, small example of this. And, and I'm going to give you a little teaser at the end about some of the things that is coming up in a report that we're doing that's going to get into this in a little bit more depth. But let me just give you one little tiny practical application of this, and that is the hierarchical road network. If you think of the way we build roads and streets today, we have this thing called the hierarchical road network. On paper, it makes brilliant sense. You start at a local road, you head out to a collector road, the collector road pours into an arterial road, The arterial road pours into a major arterial road, and then that winds up on a highway. And then the highway goes, and when you get close to your destination, you exit the highway onto a major arterial. You eventually turn onto an arterial, and then onto a collector, and then ultimately on your local street, and then you get to your destination. And it's all so theoretically beautiful, it makes a ton of sense. Think of this in terms of a river now, okay? A river is a hierarchical network. You have a ditch that flows into a, a brook or a stream. Uh, that will connect with other brooks and streams and form a, a larger river. Smaller rivers come together to form larger rivers. Up here where I live in Minnesota, uh, you know, you have many parts of the Mississippi River where you can throw a baseball across it. Go a couple hours north of here, you can actually walk across it. Uh, in your shoes. Um Go down to New Orleans and you've got parts of the Mississippi River, you know, with the flood parts and everything else that's 30 miles across. I mean, you have enormous, I remember the first time I saw the Mississippi River in New Orleans and I thought, you know, what is that lake? Oh no, that's not a lake. That's the Mississippi. Uh, think of a river network now and think of what happens uh when it, you know, it rains uh, up at those tiny tributaries And you get just a little bit of rain that happens all along those tributaries. What happens when you get down to that trunk, that big part of the river, right? You get flooding. That's what happens. You get all, just a tiny little bit of rain across this broad area, and it all trickles down and funnels down, and you get these huge, enormous uh, surges in the core trunk of the system. The hierarchical road network is the same exact thing. And for every increment of outward expansion that we do in our cities, not only do we have to pay for the transportation infrastructure for that increment. In other words, we've got to build the highways, the interchanges, the frontage roads, uh, the backage roads, all of the stuff that goes along with the transportation for that next increment of growth out on the periphery. But that little bit of sprinkling of growth out on the periphery when it's magnified and collected into that uh, arterial, uh, into that major highway, by the time it gets closer, creates enormous amounts of congestion problems. The way we alleviate congestion is what? We add more capacity. So a little bit of growth out on the periphery forces enormous increases in costs and changes in capacity throughout the entire system. This is why you can have small increments of growth you know tiny little adjustments for cost i mean we need we need a, we need 12 cents more a gallon to keep up with growth in our economy but we need 60 cents more a gallon to keep up with transportation funding need it doesn't work it doesn't work we have a system where the actual demand for transportation is is not correlated uh with the the you know with our ability to fund it uh, it's not correlated with how much our economy is growing, how much our currency is deflating, how much people actually want to drive. The costs that we incur are not correlated with any of that. That is a completely messed up system. Do we need more money for transportation? There's no question we do. There's, there's really no question at all. And, and, and really, You know, in an ideal world, we would be using new money to transition to something else. Uh, but there's no question, and I'm not gonna stand here today, you know, uh, you can call me a right winger, you can call me a libertarian, whatever it is. I'm standing here today telling you, we need more money for transportation. If I am a member of Congress, if I am a a policymaker, I am voting for higher taxes, higher fees, I am voting for more money for transportation. The question is, at what point do we vote for that? Do we vote for it now in the current system with all of the you know transportation advocates, all the engineering associations, all the general contractors, all the big businesses, the chamber of commerce, all the labor unions, everybody standing up behind it saying, we just need more money for the same system. Or do we insist, insist that we change this system first before we throw more money into it? There's a theory that, that I think is bunk, by the way. Uh, but there's a theory. Hang on. Let me, let me take a sip of Mountain Dew before we get into this. All right. There's a theory. Uh, and I don't know when it came about. I think it was the 80s. There's a theory that if you want change in government, if you want reform in government, you, you just have to starve it of resources. I think the theory is bunk. Um, it does work in private business uh, i i've seen it you know it sometimes it doesn't work as well uh, but you know a lack of resources does drive a, a certain amount of innovation. Andrew Burleson wrote about this on the blog a, a couple of years ago. I thought it was brilliant. He pointed out that when businesses become short of resources, uh, what they do is they lay off people and they keep their Programs, their initiatives—they just keep trying to do what they're doing, but they find ways to do it with fewer people. They adapt, they change, they innovate. But when government is starved of money, uh, they don't. Governments do not respond in the same way. Governments do not lay off people. They do not uh, tighten up the belt in that way. What do they do? They stop doing programs. And so, you know, I was looking in preparation for this podcast for some good audio. And I heard all these people saying, well, you know, if we don't get this money, uh, we're just going to be working on these plans and then the projects are never going to get done. And I'm thinking, okay, well, why would you work on the plans if you don't have the money to do it? Why would you just like lay off the person who's doing the plans and put, you know, that money into doing more projects? That's not the way government works. So I'm not one who's sitting here saying we just need to let this whole thing go bankrupt. Because that will change the system. Because I don't believe it will. I think letting the whole system go bankrupt will just mean we have crappy roads all over the place. Uh, it will just mean that we literally go bankrupt. I mean, we won't have a, a system that works and functions in, in any, uh, you know, appreciable, real kind of way. We will have a total, total mess. And so what we need is an actual dialogue about what a different type of transportation system will look like. I'm of the mindset that this dialogue can't come from Washington. Uh, I don't think in the cauldron of DC uh, with all the pressure groups, all the lobbyists, all the people there uh, saying, you know, we want this, we want that, uh, that any type of innovative reform is going to happen. I think, though, it can happen at the state and the local level. Unfortunately, it looks like we're just going to uh, keep all of that in limbo. In other words, instead of giving the states and local governments some kind of signal as to, here's what the answer from Washington's going to be, we're either going to fund you at this rate, we're not going to fund you, uh, we continue to come up with these kind of half-baked approaches that send no clear signal in terms of what should happen, gives nobody any impetus to question or reform anything, really, in any substantive way, and just kind of puts off for a little bit further uh, this anguish so that we continue with this really nasty system uh, with kind of everything just getting a little bit, a little bit, a little bit tighter all the time. Uh, let me give you a, a, a little glimpse on how the president is suggesting we solve this financial gap.
1: And it wouldn't add to the deficits because we pay for it in part by closing tax loopholes for companies that are shipping their profits overseas to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. Seems like a sensible thing to do.
0: Right. So uh, instead of actually kind of confronting the issue uh, from the White House, we get kind of the same solution that we get for everything else. We'll just make the people who aren't paying taxes pay more taxes and that will take care of everything. Don't worry. Keep on driving. Uh, just go about your business and uh, and vote for us. Uh, lest you think I'm picking on the Democratic Party, uh, the other side of the aisle is doing no better on this issue. In fact, I think you could argue, ah, I was going to say, I think you could argue it's even more disingenuous, although, boy, <laughs> They both kind of rhyme. Here's, the, uh, here's what the Republicans have opted to do here. The House has voted to raise nearly $11 billion from pensions, custom fees, and underground fuel tank repair funds. That would patch the hole in the
1: depleting highway trust fund, but only until May of 2015.
0: Yeah, that's probably more disingenuous than... You know, saying we'll, we'll get people who aren't paying taxes to pay taxes. Uh, this one is saying actually we will underfund, uh, pension funds for a while and then make that money up later somewhere else. Uh, and we'll use the short-term underfunding to, uh, basically pay for this without having to raise taxes. God, and you wonder why I hate politics. Um, all you people out there who are trying to get me involved in politics, trying to get me to, Either run for office or start a political action committee. Do you realize that you have to deal with people who think that these ideas are good? That you have to deal with on a daily basis people who can, with a straight face, say, "You know what we should do? Hey, I got this great idea. You know, instead of actually coming to grips with the fact that our funding system for transportation doesn't work, you know what we should do? We should just take money out of." Already underfunded pensions, uh, and use that to you know pay for the system for a few months, so that we can get through this election cycle and then come up with some other idea that's equally bad. You know, a year from now, that's a that's a stupid idea. And not only is it a stupid idea, but the fact that it's actually passed. And I believe now, you know, I I recording this uh on the thirty first. I actually believe that this passed the Senate, too. So I'm pretty sure that this is going to become law, this crazy, goofy thing. Don't try to get me involved in politics, because I think this is a joke. I think this is just really, really, really dumb. Uh, nonetheless, uh, this is a system that we're in right now. And instead of coming to grips with the fact that we have uh, a, a really a broken system, And broken, not only in terms of how things are funded, but how things are constructed, how we go about deciding what to do, how we go about prioritizing projects, how we go about actually designing and building them. This whole system needs to be reworked. Instead of rolling up our sleeves and doing any of that, uh, we're doing gimmicks like this. And I ask myself, why? And what would be a, a different... Approach, And I think that's a very fair question. I came across this goofy clip of Joe Biden uh, doing the whiteboard at the White House, where he was basically giving a transportation lesson. And I found this lesson to be so, uh, you know, as he's a politician, you know, he's going to give a spin to it. Obviously, he's not a history professor here, but I found it to be so goofed up and wrong. Uh, that I wanted to play it for you and kind of respond to it, uh, as kind of a segue to talk about some of the things that maybe we can do differently. Here's, here's Vice President Joe Biden.
1: America has been built on the back of the most modern infrastructure in the world, all the way back to the beginning. You know, the first national road was built in the early 1800s. The Congress passed that, and it generated a lot of money, not from the federal taxpayers, but investments from the local communities. In 1808, the, there's a guy named DeWitt Clinton, who was the, uh, the governor of New York. He said, I'm going to build a thing called the Erie Canal. He built it from New York all the way up to Buffalo. In the meantime, it generated hundreds of millions of dollars over time of investments all along that route. Then along came in 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, when a Republican president, uh, Abraham Lincoln, knew America had to be united and built, and that was the way to do it, a transcontinental railroad, the most extensive connection of America in our history. And then you had a president named Dwight D. Eisenhower, a Republican. He built the interstate highway system, the single biggest public works project in history. It not only generated an immense amount of commerce and wealth, it's the reason for suburbs, the reason why we have changed so radically. That was an infrastructure project that started that.
0: Yeah, I don't think for a lot of you listening... Uh, you know, Joe Biden's argument that, hey, we, uh, this is why we have the suburbs and this is why everything changed so radically, uh, is really a compelling argument. Nonetheless, I get what he's saying. Uh, let's go through a, a couple of these things and kind of point out, uh, s- some of the, I think, myths that have crept into our dialogue and our conversation on infrastructure. Um, first, this notion that America has always had the greatest infrastructure in the world. Where, where in the heck has that been reality? I mean, if if you go, (laughs) I mean, we can go back and look at, you know, early America and this was a backwater kind of place. We didn't have great infrastructure. Uh, we didn't have ways to get across this country real easily. We had just wretched infrastructure uh this was not built on the backs of great infrastructure it was you know initially built uh because we had good shipping lanes we had places where you could get you know I- inland uh from waterways i mean this is a reason why you have philadelphia this is a reason why you have uh new york where it is boston uh these were places that were on waterways where you could you know get in with shipping but it wasn't because we had great infrastructure to any degree Uh, when you look at the, kind of the industrial revolution and how that did transform America and how, uh, you know, we, we, we went through this period of time where we went from being a very second, uh, second tier kind of power to the global superpower. Uh, that was largely done, uh, you know, in, in kind of the wake of everybody else pushing the boundaries. Uh, we got the steam engine from England. Uh, we got all this technology from other places where they had built it first, uh, built it more modern and, and really built it better. And we brought it over here. I want to go through a, a couple of the specific examples that he gave though. Uh, the first road. Uh, and he, you know, alluded to that it was, you know, this is the first road that was built, was funded by Congress, created all of this private investment that paid back. And we, it wasn't paid back through taxes. It was paid back through all this private investment. Hang on to that thought in your mind because I, I want to, I want to go through these first three examples and show how they very much had that component to it. Now remember the United States at this point. In all three of these first investments, the first road, the Erie Canal, and the railroads, uh was a, a very different continent than it is today. Uh, I don't want to get into a debate about the role of Native Americans. Uh, just for the record, if we want to talk genocide, I- I'm with you. Uh, let's, for a, a second, put that out of our thought and just say, North America was a largely unpopulated country. At least in the eyes of the Americans that were in place now looking west, uh, not seeing any natives there, uh, but seeing lots of land that they could develop, could exploit, could build a- across. Is that a fair way to put it? That's not my mindset. That's not my history. Uh, but that's, you know, was the view and the mindset of the predominant population at the time. At least those making the decision. When we built the first road, when we put in the Erie Canal, and by the way, when the Erie Canal was built, uh, Governor Clinton was widely ridiculed. It wasn't until much later than that when uh, things started to pay off. And a, a lot of the early parts of the canal were privately built by individuals, including George Washington, uh, who was part of that, you know, th- because there were logical reasons why to build it. Uh, and when we built the railroad as well, these were, uh, investments serving largely unpopulated areas. And again, I'll just, so that I'm very clear. I, I realized they were populated by native people who lived here in the eyes of the people building these pieces of infrastructure. Uh, this was a, a open, free available land that was not populated by anybody who was going to get in their way. In terms of the commerce that was going on in this country, these were largely unpopulated areas. And so when these things were built, there was this enormous amount of growth that went with them. There was an enormous amount of capital that was created, of wealth that was created, uh, a really transformative kind of wealth that happened with all these investments. Because of that, a lot of this was done privately. and We talk about the railroads, and I, I wrote about the railroads earlier last spring, and talked about how, you know, especially here in the Midwest, a lot of the cities here were built by the railroads. The railroads would come in. They would build the line up to the town. When they got to the town, uh, they would plat out the town. They would lay out the first initial subdivision, get a couple buildings going, and then they would sell off the land and they would develop and sell the land and they would use that revenue from developing and selling the land to essentially pay for the construction of the railroad line. Uh, they were part railroad operators, they were part developers. The developers, how they raised the capital to build the railroad. Then the railroad became a simple operation and maintenance type of thing where you would charge people fees, uh, for using the line. This is, the reason we had this conversation earlier this year is because we were talking about value capture and the way you fund transportation systems with value capture. That was largely how we funded the railroad. Did governments get involved in funding the railroads? Yes, to a degree. Particularly the further west that you got. Uh, you know, And in, in those were the later stages of, of the development. Uh, they started to have uh, bonding, started to have subsidies, uh, more than just stealing the lands from the Native Americans and giving it to the railroad companies. They actually had other things that governments were doing to help pay for and fund some of this stuff. The general mechanism and the general mechanism of recouping this money uh, was through the new growth that came about uh, privately uh, because of these investments. You would build a town. The railroad company would recoup their capital costs through that. They would use that to build the railroad and build the line. This is how we built large parts of the railroad system. This is how we built large parts of the Erie Canal. This is how we built large parts of the initial first road that the vice president alluded to. Now let's go to the highway system. And, you know, it's very true. Dwight Eisenhower uh, helped push through a system of interstate highways uh, it's interesting because I've been, as part of putting together this report, reading a lot about uh, the debate that went into this and how Eisenhower was really not keen on the gas tax for the same reason that I'm not keen on the gas tax, uh, because it is a communal slush fund that's not correlated with demand. He wanted toll roads. He said, if we're going to build an interstate system... Uh, basically, we're building the trunk lines. Let's build it with toll roads so that we know what the demand actually is. If people pay for it, we'll build it. If, they don't, if they're not willing to pay for it, we're not going to build it. Uh, he lost out, and he lost out for a very simple reason. The gas tax was just really, really practical. Uh, back in the 1950s, it's pretty hard to collect tolls, pretty labor-intensive, uh, kind of a messy system. The gas tax was a very clean, very simple system, and the reality is gas was pretty darn cheap, There was a ton of demand uh, and a ton of growth potential from this. And so the gas tax won out as kind of a politically palatable way to do it, but also in many ways kind of a logical way to fund some of this stuff. I'm going to skip the the whole history of building this thing and just have you jump to where we're at today. Because, you know, yes, we have the suburbs. Yes, we have first-ring suburbs and second-ring suburbs and third-ring suburbs and exurbs. Uh, we have miles and miles and miles of highway and interchanges and overpasses, and we, we have just built and built and built and built uh, an enormous transportation system to serve this population spread out across this entire continent. As we did that, growth happened. As we did that, we transformed markets. As we did that, our economy changed and shifted. I want to bring you to today, 2014 United States. And I want you to just put you in my world here for a sec. I live in the city of Brainerd, Minnesota. Uh, I live two and a half hours north of Minneapolis-St. Paul. When I grew up, I grew up on a small farm just outside of town. The way in was, uh, for a while, a two-tire path through the woods, That would meet up with a gravel road. That gravel road would be gravel most of the way into town. And then when we got to town, it would kind of turn into paved on the outskirts of town. And then when we got into town, there were nice paved roads on the main streets. But when I was really little, all the streets weren't paved. They they eventually were as I got older. It maybe took us 10 minutes, 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to get to town. No congestion, you know, no real problem with traffic, anything like that. It'd take us 12, 15 minutes to get to town. If we were going to go to Minneapolis-St. Paul, that was about a four-hour trip, right? We would drive, uh what were the highways at the time? But they were real, you know, low-capacity highways, two lanes, lots of curves, that kind of thing. Uh We would wind up uh, at a lot of intersections, uh, signalized some of them, some of them were just stop signs that we'd have to stop at. It, it basically meant that you dealt with a, a certain amount of congestion and a certain amount of delay, uh, just by the very nature of getting from my house to Minneapolis. This is when I was little, you know, this is 40 years ago, 35, 30 years ago. I'm 41 now, so I probably don't remember 40 years ago, but let's say 30 years ago. this is what it was. I remember we went down to a Twins game, and it was a little over a four-hour drive. Today, I can get down there in a little over two, okay? And when you look at the transportation improvements that have been made to the highway system in this country, it's just amazing, just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, but I look at the things that they are doing today, and you know, I, I went down yesterday to uh, to Minneapolis for a board meeting for Strong Towns. And the two projects that I ran into were both, uh, places where we've taken the highway system, uh, converted it into a strode. So, you know, gummed it all up with, with accesses and all kinds of things so we can have gas stations and drive through restaurants and strip malls. And then go in after the fact and put in these very expensive interchanges and overpasses, uh, to serve that growth and development that happened a- along the interchange. I look at that and I say, okay, what we've done is, oh, hang on, I'm getting music in my ears. Not ready for that yet. Sorry. Uh, what we've done is we've spent an enormous amount of money, uh, but we've made a transformational kind of change in our ability to get long distances, right? And that really is the transformational investment of a highway system, of a roadway system. But look at look at the commute from the farm I grew up on into town. It's now instead of twelve to fifteen minutes, it's seven to ten minutes. Uh, but when we pull out of the driveway, you know, you pull out of the driveway at my parents' house, you're driving on a wide, wide paved road that turns into a, a, another wide, wide paved road that turns into a, a multi-lane uh, paved road, kind of highway, kind of thing. The, the system that has been built is just massive. It's just incredible. It just, uh, it takes an enormous amount of wealth. Has that been a transformational investment? Now, the cities have gotten growth. Uh, the cities have gotten housing developments and strip malls and drive-thrus and all that stuff. Uh, we got, you know, Walmart and then a decade later, we got Super Walmart, got Costco now, Home Depot, all, all these things that are built on, you know, the, the, the network that allows us to get to town four minutes quicker. But if you really look at it, it really hasn't changed anything in terms of how we're able to get around. Uh, it really hasn't been a transformative investment. If, if we still had a two tire path in front of the house that went into a gravel road, uh, that went into, you know, a podunk little paved road on the edge of town, nothing would really be that different. Nothing would really be that change from what it is today. Uh, you know, people probably wouldn't have chosen to live out there in the numbers that they have. Uh, people would probably choose to live closer to town. I don't know. Maybe they would still live out there and drive the podunk gravel road the way we did growing up. I don't know. Maybe they would do that. Uh, they probably wouldn't though, because they'd want fire protection. They want police protection. They would want all, you know, paved road. They want all the amenities. Uh, So what we've done is we've spent an enormous amount of money on what amounts to the first and last minute of the trip. If we step back and look at this system, building the interstates was a transformative investment, largely because there was so much land, there was so much private development that was yet to happen. But unlike the railroads... And unlike the Erie Canal, I mean, we didn't continue to build canals all over the place, did we? No. Unlike the Erie Canal, unlike the first road, uh, there was a feedback mechanism to all those that didn't exist with the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system we built. I mean, we, we built Highway 35 from Duluth all the way down south of Dallas, right? I've driven the whole length of it. We built it. We built the whole thing. It's not like if we stopped funding the interstate system today that all of a sudden 35 wouldn't line up when it crossed the Minnesota-Iowa border. It's in, it's built. The development that's happened along it has happened. Sure, could we squeeze a little bit more by putting a couple interchanges here? Yeah, we can make people move from one strip mall to a different strip mall. But are we really creating new growth? Is this really a transformative kind of investment? No, we've done that. When the I-35 bridge fell down, And we had to rebuild it. You know, you go back and look at when they originally built the 35W Bridge in Minneapolis. Uh, All the growth that took place, all the transformation, all the new investment that happened as a result of that, huge amounts of economic growth. But when the bridge fell down and we had to replace it, whether it had fallen down or, or whether we had taken it down because it was old and needed to be replaced, where's the new growth from that? Where's the transformation of the neighborhoods as a result of that investment? It's just not there. It's not there. We are now at a time where we need a transportation funding and investment policy that deals with maintaining our places as opposed to expanding our systems. One that places an emphasis on how do we get more productivity out of the investments we've made at the same time as we unwind our unproductive investments as opposed to how do we grow more by investing more in transportation. Go back to that chart. If we were increasing our transportation spending along with our economy, our gas tax at the federal level right now, instead of being 18.4 cents, would be 30 cents a gallon. That's manageable, we can do that, right? If we had a system that expanded along with our growth, we can handle that. But what do we have? We have a system that needs at least 78 cents a gallon and probably more than that, dramatically more than that, to keep up with it. That's not a viable system. That's not a viable system. And we really have to be talking about how do we switch from building to maintaining, from growth to maturing, from a system of kind of cheap and easy returns to one where we get a higher level of productivity, Out of all the transportation investments that we're making. Let me give you one last clip from Biden.
1: And we are the largest economy in the world. And we are in a position to essentially own the 21st century as the most significant economic power in the 21st century. But it can't be done. It can't be done. Unless we invest in infrastructure, that's what attracts business. That's what attracts commerce. That's what generates so much investment, not just federal dollars, cities, states, and private entrepreneurs. That's That's what what grows grows America.
0: America. I think that that mindset right there is a very 1950s mindset. We invest in transportation. That's what grows the economy. Uh, we invest in more highways. We get growth at the state level and at the local level. That's true. I mean, it, it's, the thing is, is that that equation is true. The problem is, is that there's such diminishing returns to it today that it's, it, 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 it is an old, worn out equation. It's an equation that no longer holds true to the extent that it did in the 1950s when we started building this. I agree with the vice president. We are in a position to dominate economically the next century. It is ours to lose. It is ours to mess up and screw up where I diverge from him and from really all the policymakers that I've heard out of DC and out of most of the state capitals around this country is that the key is not investing more money. We need to invest more money, but the key is not investing more money. The key is changing our transportation approach so that we're no longer focused on growth and expansion, but we're focused on maturing our systems and getting more productivity out of the investments we've made. If we can make that switch, we will dominate the next century. If we can mentally make that pivot, we're going to start spending the money we have much differently, much more wisely. And we're going to be in a great position. But if we just continue to pour the remaining wealth that we have into this non-viable system, we're going to wind up squandering the little wealth we've got left and have very, very little to show for it in the end. Now, that's kind of ending the show here on a little bit of a downer. I realize we're already over an hour into this and I need to—I need an editor, right? I need someone sitting across the, the room here telling me to cut it off. Um, I, I want to let you know that we here at Strong Towns are working on a report. We've called it for a long time the Mobility Report. It is now called Transportation in the Next American City. Uh, We're going to be releasing this report, at least in a draft format, at our national gathering. Uh, that's taking place in Minneapolis September 12th through 14th. Uh, if you're interested in knowing more about the national gathering, go to strongtowns.us. Uh, there's a link there to sign up. Uh, We'd love to have you all there to talk about these things more. I do have ideas. I do have solutions. I do have things that we should be doing differently that would help us make this transition. Those will be in that report. And I tell you what, when we come up with that report, uh, we're going to talk about it here, too. We're probably going to talk about it here, too. You guys are sick of it. Uh, We're going to probably take a whole month and talk about these issues because I think there's enough there that we need to talk about to be able to do that we gotta fix this transportation system and just hang firm everybody we're not gonna do it with more money we're only gonna do it with a different approach and we need you out there as strong towns advocates making that crystal clear we are not against additional revenue we need additional revenue we just need a new system to fund hey everybody thanks for listening uh... nice to chat with you one on one this week Uh, We'll try to do this again sometime soon. You all take care out there and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. All right, cue the music now.
1: Know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21! Yeah! And you dig, just get a beat, it's a subway. Subway! Moving right along, hear the rhythm loud and strong, it's the subway. Subway! subway. Oh, there isn't any room in this town. They put all the trains sound under the ground. Buy a token now for a ride in Super Wow on the subway. Subway! I mean, you'll see my ass, he does me. You should say you're sorry. Say you're I turn it, squeeze inside the door.